0: Today, we are talking about generative AI tools such as ChatGPT. What's the impact on the enterprise? Our guest is Nicola Marini-Bienzino, your CTO of EY. Tell us about your work.
1: I'm responsible for all. The technology that generates revenue for the firm. So I spent the last two years uh, developing what we call the EY Fabric, which is effectively a platform a data and uh, and with several components of artificial intelligence on top of it. That powers our service offerings. So we have about one and a half million clients that are using it every day.
0: It's interesting. We don't think of a techno- of a consulting firm as being a technology organization, but obviously you are.
1: I don't think there is any organization that can be not a technology organization at the same time. I think technology is and look at what we're going to be talking about today, right? Technology is so pervasive in our lives that there is no business that doesn't doesn't use it. And then, you know, if you start thinking about the consulting organization, when we provide services to our clients that are very data intensive, technology becomes so central and so fundamental to the quality of the service that we offer, the ability of doing it in many and across many countries, etc., etc.
0: Nicola, products like Chat GPT, Google is coming out with their own version. Microsoft has adopted this now in Bing. It's so popular, but why, as an enterprise CTO, do you care about this?
1: I think what we're going to see, first of all, it's an arms race, which is great, right? Because usually when big players are competing with each other, you know we tend to benefit from it, right? As consumers in this case, or enterprises. So it's very exciting of where we're going to be going next in terms of the capabilities of the technology. But be more specific about generative AI. And you know, I'm I'm looking at my own organization, for example, right, which is a knowledge-intensive organization. The ability to summarize knowledge in the way you know some of these uh, you know language models are capable of doing is absolutely of opens up uh, an endless number of opportunities for organizations. So, for example, you know, how do you systematize the knowledge within the organization? How are you build ontologies in the organizations? How do you give advice, right? To clients or how you have, for example, Scenarios where you have a sort of a co-pilot, right? So in pretty much any any one of the roles and the jobs that we have in our organization, right, we would definitely benefit of having an intelligence agent, in, intelligent agent sitting beside us, you know, every day, not replacing us but supporting our knowledge and our capabilities, right, in, in in everything that we do. So endless possibilities, and so most, and also not only in the enterprise but also in our lives. I think there will be a significant impact.
0: As a practical matter, as you think about these generative AI capabilities, how do you how do you think about it? Do you break it down into areas that you think might be useful, or or is it still just too early of an ex- exploration phase? Or wh- where are you in your thinking?
1: I think it's going to go very very fast. Uh, we're already exploring. I mean, in our specific business right which is to give advice to clients based on our knowledge or regulations our knowledge of other interaction with other clients etc you know the ability of you know tapping into the knowledge in a way that is multi-dimensional like you know some of these tools can do is absolutely incredible and uh, and fundamental so we have several projects already at ui that um, are tackling that but I think what is most fascinating about this latest development is so we had chatbots for a long time, really. I don't know exactly when we started, but you know, I would say some companies had their chatbots for at least you know eight to ten years, right? But what is different about this one is the fact that you actually can have a conversation with it. Sometimes it's these chatbots, you know, you are doing customer I mean, as a as a. As a consumer, right, you you go onto a website because you wanna have some more information about the product or so you're complaining about the product or something, right? You get into this very frustrating you know, interaction with the with the chatbot that if you don't exactly hit the question the way the chatbot expects it, then you you go in, in nowhere and you at least this is what I do, you get to a point where you say, please I wanna speak to an agent, a real human, right? And, and these these tools now that are coming to the market are actually very different because they allow you to actually have a dialogue because they can maintain the state of that conversation. Right? So the previous chatbots, you ask a question, you get an answer, and that's it. There is no memory of that interaction that the chatbot can retain, but now you can. So you can go, it's almost like I call it, but maybe a little bit abusing the term, but a sort of a dialectic of AI, right? So where you ask a question, you get an answer, and you get another you ask another question and you get closer to what you want to get out of it, as opposed to a sort of an expert system where, you know, it's question and answer and that and that's pretty much it. Right. So it's very interesting, those I think that is the feature that to me is most exciting.
0: Would it be correct to say that that you feel the defining characteristic is this ability yeah. to remain to to retain the state of the conversation
1: there are so many other things that are great right the ability of writing in 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 in, a, in, a, in multiple languages right so I'm Italian originally right so that's my first language it writes as good in Italian as it is in English right and you can ask the questions you, you can you can envision like you know meetings where you know you have everyone speaks his own language which I think it would be an incredible for global companies it would be an incredible achievement right today we still have to there is still a lot of lost in translation but these tools are so refined and sophisticated now that even the nuances of a translation can be really you know highlighted in the right way which is incredible
0: we have a question that's come in from twitter already which is an important question from Arsalan Khan. Arsalan's a regular listener, and I always thank Arsalan for his wonderful questions. And He says this. He says, when we use AI as a co-pilot, we have to be careful about the data it is pulling uh, in order to give us suggestions. If we aren't aware of biases or stereotypes in the data, then how? what should we do it's, it's one of the fundamental questions of dealing with these types of technologies.
1: Absolutely. I have lots of people that inside my own company, right, that reach out and say, I want to try GTB, how can we use it with clients? I said, you know, so a word of caution is, I think, it's well warranted at this point, right? Meaning that you are the human in charge, you know what I mean? So it cannot delegate completely the work to these agents because they're not yet at that level of being able to understand, you know, our ethical code, right? The morality, then, you know, what is acceptable or not acceptable unless it has been labeled by another human, right? So the human in the loop approach is absolutely essential here, right? So you should, so I use it as a sort of an aid as opposed to a delegation of responsibility, right? That cannot happen. So the, the human has to be in charge and hopefully the human, I mean, you can argue that even the humans has a lot of potential flaws, right, in terms of what kind of answers you know is capable of of giving. But you know we're not at, for sure at the point yet where we can delegate a function to you know a tool like this.
0: I heard a very interesting comment yesterday on the news from a, a journalist who said who as a reminder that tools like chat gpt or what google is going to come out with all of these tools they're really like advanced autocorrect on your phone they have they give the appearance of sentience but they're just it's just like autocomplete
1: we could go into a, like a very long ph- philosophical conversation on what you know what is sentence, what sentence really means. But I agree. I think. I mean, I, I would say the autocorrect maybe is a little bit too trivialized, right? As a as a definition, definitely is not. So if you, autocorrect is on one end of the spectrum, and on the other end is sentence, like it's 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 in the middle, right? So I think we need to understand. So we, Sometimes, you know, we tend to, whenever there is a new technology, especially these kinds of technologies that are a little bit more difficult to understand because they're actually quite complex. We tend to give them either, you know, kind of transfer, uh, some sort of alienation, right? We transfer to them the expectations that we have from another human being, right? So if we do that, that is the wrong approach, right? This is not a human being. This is a bunch of silicon, you know, and a lot of data that gives you some kind of an answer. But if you actually think about it as a sort of an aid, right? I am taking an airplane to go from San Francisco to New York. That is what these tools are. So it's a machine that helps you do things faster, right? But if you think about it, it's not that different than at the beginning truly of the mass adoption of the internet, right? So I I graduated in, in the 90s from university, right? So whenever I had to do something, a research paper. I had to go to my the library in my city to find the physical book, and you know it was taking forever to get the information out, etc. Then the search engines came up, and that was like incredible because you can access the whole knowledge of the human race, you know, at a at a keystroke. And so that doesn't mean that we assign to that technology like a superhuman ability, right? It's something that helps you. Search things better, and the same. I think we need to look at these new tools in the same way. Show me what's possible. So show me the search criteria. Show me what the search results are, and then I need to be the one that makes the decision on what is relevant and what is not.
0: I think one of the challenges for folks in the enterprise or or just in our personal lives is that the answers these tools give comes across as being authoritative. Yes. Yes. But it may be totally incorrect.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) And that is what we shouldn't, this is the thing, right? If if we think about, if we start talking about human characteristics and we transfer them to describe a tool, we make a mistake, right? We will never call, you know, a car like, you know, fast legs, you know, maybe that's the wrong example, but you see what I mean? So, but if we use them and say, okay, so... We need to put them sort of in a box, right, and say, like, you know, today you do with some of the search, you you do a Google search, right, and it comes back like with millions of pages sometimes, right? So it's up to us to select what is the page that has the highest level of relevance for what we're looking for, right? We need to look at it the same way, as opposed to, oh, okay, there is a, you know, a super superhuman intelligence that you know, knows everything, right? So, that's why I think, you know, when you think about academia as well, I think if we start relying on these things too much, right, we lose the fundamental understanding of a domain or a subject, right? It can become a little bit dangerous from that perspective.
0: Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button at the top of CXOTalk.com, our website, and subscribe to our newsletter. Well, we have another question from Twitter that's related to this. and This is from Chris Peterson, who says, in business communications, whether it's B2B or B2C, do we have an ethical duty to call out what's written or edited by an AI assistant? He says, if a human reviews it, modifies it, and hits send, does that change this ethical duty?
1: Today, when you publish a paper, There is a process to publish a paper, right? So you need peer reviews, you need to, you know, cite your sources, you need to do all these type of things. Okay. You cannot just say, I came out with this, right? Without, you know, that that would be plagiarism, right? So I think there has to be a, a framework similar to that one in this space, right? So if I'm like doing, for example, like, you know, a client, for example, asks me about whatever, some regulation somewhere, right, I can do some research, and I can use ChatGPT, or I can use another tool, or I can use, you know, my own traditional Google searches or something to get the information out, my own internal knowledge, and to provide that answer, right? So, when I do that in an email, right, as long, I think, you know, it it, it is fine to do it as a human being, right? So, I think, I don't know why, there shouldn't be any other way, but if I'm Producing a paper, just using that, right? Relying on somebody else's work and I don't, you know, recognize that and I don't do the citations and I don't do this and that. Then, of course, you know, I'm getting into plagiarism. I I think. It's the same way that a human would be doing in a research paper like that. So complicated. So I think there is the need of, especially in the IP, in the whole, you know, legal discipline of intellectual property as uh, as well, that there is a need of some kind of a Rethinking about some of the fundamentals of that because this is different.
0: Yeah, and clearly there are a whole set of ethical and legal yes. issues.
1: Yeah, absolutely, right. So and 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 so that's why I think we need. It's funny the philosophy, right? Or probably the ancient, the most ancient academic discipline is still you know very much alive because we need to ask ourselves all these questions, right? And we need to have frameworks to to. to to address them, like, you know, it wasn't when the the beginning of intellectual property came up as a protected um, you know, right in those days, like when the legislation started to get introduced, there were similar conversations I'm expecting, right, so you're not supposed to take somebody else's intellectual work and make it yours, right, and so I think we need to have that dialogue today. What is going to be much more difficult today is that these tools the 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 marginal cost of producing or generating you know this type of documentations or whatever we generate is almost zero so we will be inundated by this volume of documents papers books images and stuff and it will be really hard to understand what is really generated by a human what is not etc so you know maybe like Chris was asking like uh, identifying that content would be you know a really good step uh, first step I guess
0: and this is Arsalan Khan comes back again and he says when everyone is quote doing AI what sort of governance structures should be placed and uh, I love this. Let's you know. Let's let's write let's write a thesis on this. What sort of governance structures should be in place at an organizational level, as a governmental, and as a at a global level? Why don't we just simply start with organizational governance of AI? Any that's going to become important, very important. Any thoughts on that?
1: So, for example, I was th- mentioning the example of a knowledge company, right, like ours, right. So, first of all, you want to be able to to store that knowledge in a way that is relatively secure, in the sense that not secure, I mean, of course, from attacks from the outside, but that's one piece, but also secure in the sense that is the knowledge that the company wants to protect, right? So, the so if you think about an ontology within an enterprise, right? And you have the definition of some entities or concepts, you wanna make sure that that definition is, shared by everybody, it is approved, etc. Right. So I think that is the kind of a need of establishing a sort of an I'm gonna say this but probably is the wrong word, right? It's, it's a sort of a, an editorial board, right, for this type of knowledge that gets systematized within the knowledge repository of the enterprise. So the concept of you know what is revenue, for example, for a an audit company, right? It can be different than what is used you know, on the street. And so when people search for the word revenue, there has to be an approved definition of it behind the scenes. So so to me, that is highly curated content. So you have to have an organization, I believe, that looks after the, makes sure that nothing, you know, if you ask revenue and it gives you another answer, that's not good, okay? So that type of, you know, potential divergence has to be understood, has to be prevented, and has to be managed. So that to me is is the key. In some other areas where that kind of you know being uh, true to the to the book definition of things is not that critical, I think you know a little bit more dialogue could be could be welcome, right? And I think we need to let the tool itself learn and evolve, etc. So too much controls and too much governance, I don't think is going to be a good thing. So I guess the answer is it depends, right? Typical consulting answer, but. It depends, in the sense that you know, what is the type of knowledge that you want to maintain, govern, and protect, as opposed to the other ones that you want a little bit more free flowing and, and 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 more interactive.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And looking at other important domains inside an organization that require governance, just this is a natural kind of a approach to use that as a model, but then be open to the fact that, as you said. Generative AI will change and evolve over time, and so we ha- we can't be too locked down about it.
1: You cannot you cannot constrain it too much, I think, because otherwise you, you lose the value of it, right? It's just curated knowledge, and you know, curated knowledge it's all, it, it's it's rear view knowledge, right? So you don't you don't you're not able to anticipate what's coming.
0: We have another really interesting question, short question, uh, hard question from Anil Vias, and he says. What kind of jobs may become redundant by generative AI tools?
1: I don't think this technology yet. Okay. I don't know about the next five to 10 years. Okay. That's different. But right now, I don't see the, again, the delegation of a function completely towards another tool. Even if in the creator's economy, right? Even if you create art, like digital art in your life, that's your job. I don't think it can be completely created by the machine, right? We're seeing, you know, AI, art, et cetera. But at the same time, I think if you are an artist and if you are a creator, there is a lot of additional value that you can add on top of what the machine creates by itself, right? And so in the enterprise, I see more jobs created than, less, than jobs disappearing, right? Because I see a lot of opportunity, for example, for, uh, you know, people that can systematize, data in a different way right or can um you know again like i am very big on on this con- concept of ontologies because i think if you can store the enterprise knowledge you know that it's value that translates into shareholder value right and it's also like you know allows you to protect the the, the ip and and the capabilities of an organization right so think about our organization three hundred and sixty thousand people Eight hours a day is 2.4 million hours of work every day. If you can capture the knowledge, structure it in a machine, and then having give access to it to our clients to our own people, then makes our our company even more valuable than what it is. So I, I see more opportunities than less. If that makes sense.
0: You have been alluding to and talking about this knowledge management function. How does generative AI change knowledge management relative to the historical tools?
1: If I look at my company, right, I'm not going outside of our business. That is, to me, is the the low hanging fruit. Okay, that is so the fact that we are able to access all that knowledge uh, and the fingertip in a way that is human friendly. So today, right, if I had to say, for example, in, the, in our tax business, if I had to help a client, you know, understand the taxation regulation around 10 countries, usually I had to read, like, you know, millions of pages of stuff, right, and it has to be an army of people doing it. If I have a tool that, that, that you know, with level of confidence summarizes all that information, I can spend more time talking about client with clients about their options than just, you know, reciting what the regulations are doing, right? So people will be happier, we'll have access. We of course everything has to be curated, as I said, right, especially in this type of businesses, has to be curated and managed and governed and etc. cannot be the Wild West, right? Because you don't wanna, you know, that the machine thinks that you know we're looking at the legislation of Switzerland and in reality we need to talk about Austria. Right. So that's it that is a potential issue, right? But when you have done that, I think you know the research and the work that they will be doing is much more will be more like the, the number of hours that we spend doing more valuable work will be, I think, higher, and people will be satisfied. and the, the quality of the work that we'll be doing will be higher as well.
0: How will these kinds of tools change work inside an enterprise?
1: In every business application, right? The one that we build, we don't have it yet, but, you know, we're going in that direction is to have like, I will have my little, you know, sub window or the frame on the side of the main screen that allows me to ask questions on the fly in real time about what I'm doing. And so think about like someone gets out of school, right? You know, 23, 24 years old out of university they joined our company, right? Instead of, you know, getting them to do like, you know, weeks and weeks of training and asking making sure that they get to the right person as a mentor etc they can do that of course because the human relationship is so important but at the same time if they can access their knowledge institutional knowledge codified in the system i mean that will be it will be much easier for them to work and, and to grow right so i think that to me that's what the co-pilot concept right it's not like it's Com- that that function will be automated or replaced, but I have this agent that I can talk to and ask questions I mean, it would be fantastic. I, I wish I had that at the beginning of my career.
0: I do a fair amount of writing and I use Chat GPT and I just uh, subscribed or was uh, put on the the user list for uh, Microsoft Sping and I can't wait for Google to come out with their product, and I actually subscribe to several of these products. And as a co-pilot, I have to say, it's a phenomenal thing. Yeah. I mean, the body of knowledge, the efficiency that it helps, and just coming up with new ideas, it's its very fast, much faster than, than I could do on my own.
1: Absolutely. And the new ideas, I mean, they're not really the, the machine. This is the thing, right? We shouldn't think about so alienating ourselves in the sense that we give these two, you know, too much responsibility in terms of you know their level of intelligence. Because ultimately, there is always like a, today at least there is always a human behind the scenes that has curated the content, has structured it in a certain way, has trained the model in a certain way. So it's still human knowledge, right? But it's but the nice thing about it is that you can have access to it immediately. So you know, I, I was making the example earlier of the the old school, you know, hard, you know, cover type of library, right? You had to find the book, you know, in the library to be able to talk about a specific domain. Here, you can you can have access to an incredible amount of data, like very very quickly.
0: We have another really interesting question from Anil Vyas, and he says. If the data set that trains the generative AI, AI has an intrinsic bias, how can we get rid of this bias or overcome this bias so that it is neutral? And I think he's talking in two things. One from the point of view of the software developer, and number two, from the point of view as us as consumers, as users.
1: The people that manage the data that trains the model, right? That's what fundamentally comes down to right so if you feed it in the model racist you know type of concepts right the model will resume that so that is of bias you know of any kind so it's fundamentally it's a human responsibility right so in enterprises as i said earlier we need to govern that we need to have you know a Sort of a first of all, we need to have values, right? The enterprise level values, things that you wouldn't do and not do, because they will help guide, you know, what is the, you know, what, what is the concept of bias and how people should uh, should 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 should, uh, should should manage that part, right? And then at the same time, I think as I said earlier, there is, there has to be an editorial board of some sort that oversees and takes the responsibility or um, for for what goes into the the machine, ultimately, right? So I think it wouldn't uh, be—there is risk for sure, right? And it's something that we need to take very seriously.
0: This is, again, from Arslan Khan, who says, when it comes to life and death situations and the AI is wrong, who should we sue? The (laughs) AI vendor, the data owners, the algorithm creators? who do we sue when there's a when something really goes wrong
1: i think we should not get in the position when it's a question of life and death left to a machine that that to me is the number one so if we had to make if you have to get to a position where the machine has to make a decision that has you know the power of um you know driving an event of this level i think there is something wrong in the way we're approaching it the, these technologies are not at that level yet, right? So we don't don't want that, I think, yet, until it can be proven in a different way. So if, let's say, it's a medical diagnosis that has to be provided, the expectation is that there is always a physician in charge with the help of the tools, right? But fundamentally, it's it's down to the human. So I don't, I mean, it would be really, even you, you can think about, you know, just, Stretching out a little bit from just the the generative AI piece of it, you know, even for we're not ready yet to do full, you know, fully full self-driving cars, right? For for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is not just technology; it's about that kind of a, who's liable, who's accountable, what kind of ethical decisions they need to be taken, etc. So if we're not ready there, which is in a way is a more mechanical way of doing it, we shouldn't be ready to add to delegate again you know the responsibility for these type of decisions to to just a machine yet
0: we have another great question from this time from Elizabeth Shaw on Twitter and she says why do tools such as google bard or chat gpt hallucinate even when it's using correct source data and what are the implications therefore for using these kinds of tools for knowledge management inside an organization like ey
1: there is the risk right because at the end you know it's reinforcement learning you learn and you know the the, the answer that gives you know the best results are the ones that the win right so it's, there is a sort of a you know a, a, a selection mechanism of the answer so if the, the the answers that are rewarded are those that are going, you know, on a tangent, you know, probably you can get in this scenario. This is, at the end of the day, it's a statistical tool, right? So, I mean, we, we, we call it artificial intelligence, whatever, but effectively it's, it's the application of statistics, right, to a very complex problem, but it's still statistics. And so there are op- absolutely situations where statistics gets you into the outlier. Right. Absolutely. So that's possible. Even, I don't know. I'm not a mathematician, but I'm sure there are lots of ways that this can dis- describe mathematically. In terms of what needs to happen for the enterprise, I said it earlier. Right. We should that should not be allowed. Right. Because you don't want to have, you know, a, a tool speculating on what tax legislation might be if I look at our own business. Right. So we need to give specific answers to clients. That's why this kind of a curated approach to it. You know, for the time being, is absolutely critical. So it will be. It's an investment that every company needs to make, both from the bias, the ethical side, but also for the content of the of the answers and the questions, etc. So there has to be some sort of a labeling that happens on the tool when you give an answer and you train it, right, to make sure that this is the the answer that is proper, right?
0: Can I ask, to what extent are you thinking through these kinds of Processes at EY.
1: We are experimenting, so we're trying to understand, you know, how much work uh, needs to be done, et cetera. So we are in the process of um, of defining all of that. I think that's why, you know, the previous questions was, you know, are we gonna replace people? I, I don't see that. I think, you know, the more we use these tools, the more we need to add it, uh, human expertise to it. So it's going to be the opposite, right? I think for, for at least for the next, you know few years until these tools mature and there is more knowledge about it, you know, th- there is definitely the need for for investing in the enterprise in human capabilities around that.
0: Chris Peterson on Twitter comes back and he's asking if you have any thoughts on cybersecurity issues created a need for cy- for the cyber insurance industry. No. And do such firms and policies have a role in shaping and governing the use of AI in the enterprise regarding liability?
1: I think in the future, probably yes. I don't, again, I don't see any enterprise function completely delegated to AI. And so if it's always a sort of a centaur model where there is the human and the machine together doing something on behalf of the enterprise i think fundamentally it's just the same level of liability and responsibility that you have today in the future okay so for example let's say you know credit decision or other type of things without going into the most dramatic you know healthcare related decisions um, I I I, see, I don't see why not that could be some level of, uh, of insurance, but I haven't in my understanding so far, okay, and it, it's for sure not complete. Um, I haven't seen anybody yet that is planning to completely you know run a piece of a business like that in an automated fashion.
0: What are some of the challenges that you see to adoption of these kinds of tools in the enterprise?
1: One is overhype. I've done, you know, for most of my career AI, right? starting from school basically. And I've seen these ebbs and flows of excitement. Right. So I started I started really in ninety seven and it was like, you know, the winter of AI. Nothing really happened for years, right? Even if there was a lot of potential. In those days it was all about expert systems, you know, that kind of knowledge, because we didn't really have the technology. In terms of the processing power, you know, the memory and all those kind of things. Then he started getting into, you know, some games, you know, there were a win, like, you know, the chess, world championships, blah, blah, blah. So I'm not going to make the whole history, but it was, but, you know, every single time that there was a major breakthrough, like the one, the big blue with IBM did in the 90s, you know, beating Kasparov, there was a huge, you know, you know, interest and everything. Then it went down again, right, for for a few years. Then deep learning came up and we started dealing much more with, uh, you know, uh, image recognition, which I think is a great application of artificial intelligence. So then another big, you know, um, uh, spike of interest that actually is leading to these new language models, right? There are similarities. And so, sometimes, you know, we, we tend to, again, to humanize these technologies to the point that we that our expectations of what they can do becomes the same level of expectation we will have from a human. But it's mm-hmm. not that. So I think that if I was an enterprise, outside of mine, of course, <laughs> I would spend time trying to demystify in a way what these things can do, but at the same time showing the value that they can provide because there is a lot of value out there. Right. it's just that, unfortunately, what happens is that people get overhyped, and then they get over-disappointed. And so, you know, in two, maybe in a year from now, we're, we're going to say that ChatGPT was a great failure, even if it's actually an incredible innovation. I don't think so, right? But it could happen. It could happen because people, you know, think that these things can do things that are, you know, comparable to what a human being can do. They can't right now.
0: What advice do you have for folks in the enterprise who are business leaders and technology leaders who are looking at these kinds of technologies and trying to figure out what to do?
1: The bottom line is that this is going to go, go really fast. Again, right, I was t- saying at the beginning, this is going to it's an arms race between super powerful companies <laughs> that have a lot of money to invest. Right? then you start getting into you know, government so I think this is going to be exponential, the speed of this innovation will be exponential I think we're just seeing the beginning of it okay? and so I think that there are two, two things to think about so one is there is no right now you need to be knowing what it is and being able to understand how to apply to your business So there is no postponing it. I say, oh, you know, I'm not going to be an early adopter. I'm going to be a very fast follower. Very fast follower is super fast follower. Very fast follower could be in six months. So I think for large enterprises that can afford to do that, I think there is the need of experimenting, hiring the right talent or training the right people to get to a good handle on where this industry is going, right? This is, it's, you, you have to be keeping an eye on this. That's that's the bottom line. And then the other thing is that I think lots of questions, very, very good questions about the ethical implication, the bias, and all of that, it's really important because it has a massive brand impact. Right. So there is also a risk management side of around these technologies that has to be understood very well. So if I, you know, I would be a, a CEO of an organization, I would push my technology team to have the right skill sets. To understand what it is and where it's going, and at the same time, I would put in place, you know, some risk management thinking around it as well.
0: To what extent do you think that the developers of these tools and the the, the folks who are gathering the data sets? Need to have that ethical understanding. And the reason I ask is because historically, technology was kind of separate from the ethical or the application of that te- technology from an ethical perspective.
1: It's absolutely critical, right? And, you know, think about what's happening, you know, with social media, right? So it's how important it is that content moderation in social media. So, you know, this is not exactly the same, of course, but, you know, if you translate it into Uh, this space, I mean, there is opportunity for abusing these tools everywhere, right? And as I said, the brand impact is massive. So there is the need of, you know, setting guidelines. So for example, internally, that is why we have specific guidelines on how to use the tool, what we can do and not do with it, right? For now, maybe they're a little bit restrictive, but we want to be on the on the safe side of things, and then we're going to open them up a little bit more as as time goes by. But you know, it, there has to be. But everything starts with the true understanding of what is available and possible, right? And if you don't understand that in detail, it's difficult to put you know the boundaries around it.
0: And so today, we're really at this phase where we're understanding yeah. what's reasonable, what's practical, what can we do. Yes. And, and it shouldn't
1: be underestimated in terms of the ability of driving innovation, but it shouldn't be either overestimated in terms of being a sentient being or anything like that, because that, you know, I think it's, it, we're far from that.
0: You know, I have to say, the interesting thing about this question to me is the fact that people have this conversation because at times these chats mimic human, human conversation so well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. I think what they have done, it's absolutely one of the, in my mind, one of the most incredible inventions of the last, definitely this century, right? I mean, there is has the, been the iPhone, I mobile phone, social media, all that kind of stuff. Great. I think it's super important. But this one, it goes towards another level of innovation because it impacts our, you know, it's really like, you know, it's almost like looks like reasoning, right, of a human, right? So it, it, it's absolutely incredible. So I'm, um, you know, I'm super excited about it.
0: And why don't we finish up with another question from Arsalan Khan who says on Twitter, what do you hope future iterations of AI can do?
1: I think the future iteration I think it has to be more transparent right? So that you guys have asked fantastic questions about bias, ethics, and all of that. So that is a problem, right? So if it go, if this techn- these technologies are powerful, if they go in the wrong hands in terms of, you know, being able to generate content as shifts behaviors so public, you know, understanding of things, it's really dangerous because we're basically adding another layer of intermediation between us and the sources of knowledge, right? So if... That is done with not the right ethical, I guess. You know, it can influence politics, it can influence elections, it can do a lot of different things that we don't want. So I think that transparency and ability to monitor what it does and how it's trained, I think is really important. But then I cannot wait for the future because you know, like there is so much more. Think about the breakthroughs that we can have when the sum of the human knowledge. Is so accessible, right? And in such a smart way. I think, you know, it, it will take years, right? It's not something that, you know, oh, on Monday we're going to, you know, really implement n- nuclear fusion. That's not the thing. But in terms of stimulating a different level of thinking and summarizing this knowledge, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. I'm so excited about it.
0: We have one last question that snuck in under the wire. And so, how about if we finish out with something from Melvin Aguiar? who says how comparable are products like chat GPT to low code no code will they coexist or eliminate one eliminate the other uh, and I think he's referring to the fact that these tools are really optimized to help write code
1: yes I think right now it's not that big yet. But definitely, that is the direction. So you would ask, you know, how much code would you have to write in uh, in five years when you can actually talk to a a tool and say, "Can you build me this application with these characteristics, these inputs, outputs, data, etc."? So I think the direction. I think the what, what I say, like you know, the writing is on the wall in terms of you know, software engineering will have to be changed completely. It doesn't mean that. They're not going to be there's not going to be software engineers absolutely not but I think the role of the software engineer will have to change a little bit more and get closer to the business because you still need a human that can summarize those needs and requirements into a ask at the machine but do you need you know armies of people to code you know routines in different lang- programming languages maybe not
0: and with that unfortunately we're out of time. It's been a fascinating conversation. I want to say a huge thank you to Nicola marini Bianzino. Nicola, thank you for being here with us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Michael.
0: And Everybody, thank you for watching, especially those folks who ask such great questions. I always encourage you to watch and ask questions. You guys are an amazing audience. But before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button at the top of CXOTalk.com, our website, and subscribe to our newsletter. And tune in for our live shows, and we will see you again next time. Have a great day, everybody.